Let's get our Bibles out and go to Matthew chapter 5, page 1115 on the Pew Bible in front of you there. Matthew 5. We are in a series that I'm calling Together. And what we're endeavoring to do is look at aspects of the Christian life, but through the lens of how we experience them together. And so we've looked at uh, various uh, things from prayer uh, to uh, just the way that we relate to one another, how we encourage each other. Tonight we're going to look at being determined and different from Matthew chapter 5. Now, before we just jump into Matthew chapter 5, just think a minute about the context of the words that we're about to read. Here we are in the Sermon on the Mount. Every time I think of the Sermon on the Mount, I'm struck by just the intensity and the gravity of this moment. Jesus, in the fullness of time, has come, born in a manger, Emmanuel, God with us. Now He's grown up. He's lived roughly 30 years on this earth. He's got a, you know, he's got a family around him. He's experienced all the things that someone would experience uh, growing up with a, as a carpenter's son, living his life. But all that time, knowing that there was going to come a moment when his purpose for being there was going to be unleashed. In other words, just think about how Strange it was to live in this tension that no one else knows what's coming, but He knows. He knows. He knows that there's going to come a day. He's going to know that there's going to, there's going to be a moment, a morning that He's going to wake up and it's going to be the inauguration of something absolutely brand new and spectacular in every way. And so basically, for all of eternity... Everything has been pointing to this moment, has been waiting for this moment, for the moment when the Son of God is going to be unleashed on the face of the earth to begin this uh, remarkable three-year span that is going to turn mankind upside down. And then the moment comes. And the first sermon that Jesus preaches is the Sermon on the Mount. The words contained in the Sermon on the Mount, I mean, everything Jesus said is equally true and amazing and awesome and valuable. But there's just something that strikes me about these words, this sermon, just everything that led up to this moment. It's like... For 30 years, Jesus has sort of been uh, standing in line. You know, at Disney World in the middle of summer when there's 40 billion people there and He's waiting in line to ride this roller coaster and He's waiting and He's waiting and He's waiting and He's waiting and finally He gets to the front. 
And finally, it's time for him to get on. And he gets into the front car and that bar sort of comes down over him and makes that big clanking sound. And at that moment, you know that you're pretty much stuck now. There's no turning back. You can't bail off. And you're, you're looking up at the, the climb that's ahead and suddenly the car lunges forward and then it catches and it starts clickety-clackety, 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 clickety-clackety. But the difference is, is that Jesus knows that this ride that he's about to embark on is going to be fatal. That everyone who's ever gotten on a roller coaster and been in that moment where you're climbing up that first incline, your heart is beating because there's a little bit of uncertainty. But at the end of the day, if you weren't confident that you were going to survive, you wouldn't have gotten on the roller coaster. Let's face it, nobody's strapping in for death. But Jesus, He knows that this isn't going to work out, that He's not coming safely into the landing at the end. That he is now locked in and embarking on an unstoppable adventure that's going to end in his death. You see, it sort of changes the way we just jump into words, doesn't it? Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they see your good works and they glorify your Father in heaven. Lord, we pray tonight that as we stand before your word, God, we would in our hearts just confess the reality that it's spoken by you. And Lord, it's meant for us. Now, Father, help us. Give us ears to hear and hearts to receive that you might do with us in this time as you see fit. We are yours. Take this time and use it for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. This famous passage of Scripture, and yet it's, it's personal to each of us, but it's corporate for all of us at the same time. It's a... Uh, it's, uh, it's a personal mandate to every Christian, but it also has corporate ramifications that when we live this out in community, something spectacular happens. There's been a lot of discussion over the years. There's probably been disagreement and discussion since the since five minutes after Jesus spoke these words over. What exactly does he mean by salt and light? What is he getting at? What is the what is the the point here? What is he trying to to get us to understand? Well obviously um, we've all heard 
the sermons or had the Sunday school lessons or Bible studies about the preservative nature of salt. And no matter how dark a room is, if you have a little bitty light, it's going to impact the whole room. And all of those things are true. And But that's not what I want us to focus on. First of all, I want you to see that Jesus uses salt, which is in fact a preservative, but would only be used to prevent something from decaying. So the point I think he's making is that everything is in decay. Everything is careening towards darkness. And so there's a distinctive difference between decay and darkness with salt and light. That there's a collision between two things, decay and darkness, and two things, salt and light. And so the first thing I want us to think about is the necessity of distinctiveness. That if we're going to look at what does this, what does this look like in our lives? What, do, what happens when a group of people begin to live out Matthew chapter 5, 13 through 16 together? The first thing that Jesus is driving home to all of us personally and corporately is that there is a necessity for distinctiveness. That what is not happening here is Jesus is making crystal clear nothing is staying the same. That you're not putting salt on something so that it remains the same. And you're not putting light into darkness so that it remains the same. That there is a change, that there's a collision, that there's a transition that's happening. You see, salt is different than what you apply it to. So if we want to run with the... With the, the the meat illustration and that salt was used because there wasn't any refrigeration and so salt would be applied to food to preserve it, to keep it from spoilage. Well, if you have meat that is decaying or if you have meat that is bland, if you have meat that is in need of help, what you don't do is rub another piece of meat against it. Rubbing two pieces of meat together is not going to do you any good whatsoever. You have to bring something new into the equation. You bring salt into the equation because it changes the dynamic of what you're dealing with. It's distinctively different. It creates something different. It takes something from what it was and brings it to something that what it now is. Light is obviously different from darkness. And those two don't go together. That light always overcomes darkness. You, you can't have darkness overpower light. It doesn't work that way. Light overpowers darkness. And so when you bring darkness and light into a dark equation, it changes. And so Jesus is just drawing out this necessity for distinctiveness. That you as salt and light are distinctively different than what's out there. Than whatever the world is. You are different. That's all he's getting us to see at first. So I guess the question that sort of jumps out at us is, is there distinctiveness about us as a people? It's very important to ask the question, 
Are we distinctive than the culture around us? If we are, how are we distinctive? In what ways are we different? That's why it's, it's so good to listen closely when someone begins to talk about their experience among us, in community with us. That when they come from darkness into the light of this community, how, how do they feel? How are they received? How does, how, what is their, you know, just like we heard this morning in those baptism videos, what is the way in which the community of believers impacts them? You see, here's what we don't, here's what doesn't happen. We don't, we don't come in here on Sundays when we're having baptism and we don't hear videos where someone says, here's the thing. I'm driving down John Clark and suddenly I'm struck by the shape of that building. And it just starts drawing me in. And that funny little pointy thing on the top, I couldn't get it out of my mind. I just had to know what was in there. And then I walked in, and as I walked in, these giant wooden beams that span across this wide opening just began to speak to me. They just began to move me. And I, I was just impacted by it. And the, the faint smell of a blend of 7,000 different colognes and perfumes all at one time. It was like a sweet aroma. No, no one says that. You know what they say? You. They say, you impacted me. That people met me at the door. People hugged my neck. People asked me questions. People knew my name. People took care of my children. People. That's what happens. And guess what? When people don't impact a person, you never hear that story. You know why? Because they're not here. Distinctiveness is oh so powerful. Think about it. Why would these words be here? Why would these words be so preeminent that, that we're going to basically take the Beatitudes and we're going to bring them into application right here and we're going to say, now what does all that look like? Distinctiveness. That's what that looks like. That's exactly what that looks like. That you're not just a group of people that looks like any other group of people. But there's something about us corporately that is different. We're like salt and light. The second thing that Jesus is drawing our attention to is the necessity of presence. In other words, it... It could be easily overlooked because it's so simplistic and obvious, but yet I see it as so very important. That everything Jesus is saying from 13 to 16 requires us to be engaged, to be there. In other words, salt without flavor is useless. A candle that has the capacity to be lit, no matter how dark the room is, is useless unless it's lit. See, he says, look at verse 13. You are the salt of 
the earth. In other words, you're present. You're the salt of presence. You're the salt here. Look at verse 16. So let your light so shine where before men that they may see. In other words, you your light is not shining off somewhere. It's before men that they may see you are present with the people that are being impacted by the distinctiveness of your light or your salt. In other words, I think the New Testament gives us two guardrails that that cause so many people so much confusion. I don't know why. It's so simple. It's so straightforward. I don't know how this gets so tangled around in so many professing Christians' lives. But there are two simple guardrails that we are free to exist between. Now, it may feel like a narrow walkway or it may feel to you like a big, broad thoroughfare. But either way, there's two distinct guardrails that you exist in the middle of as you deal with this current world. Okay? Two. Guardrail number one. Do not be conformed to the world. On this side, the Bible says, Romans chapter 2, do not be conformed to the things of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove that which is the good, acceptable, perfect will of God. In other words, do not be conformed. You have to be distinctive. You can't just become like the world. If you become like the world, you're going to be like salt with no flavor. So don't do that. But on the other side, this guardrail over here is don't isolate yourself from the world either. That what the Bible calls us to be is in the world, but not of the world. So we, we don't be, we're not conformed to the world, but then some people just take that so far and they isolate themselves from the world and they make themselves like salt with no flavor or a light under a basket. And it drives me crazy because Jesus is so specific about both guardrails. In John chapter 17, just this amazing glimpse into the very heart, maybe the most personal, most transparent moment in all the Gospels, into, into the heart of Jesus, where we get to listen in as he is at literally at the end of his life, he knows that the, 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 this wild ride is coming to an end and he's about to careen off the next curve. And the last time of prayer that he spends with his father, we get to listen in. We have an entire chapter that just, it just mo- it is one of the most moving, sensational places in Scripture. But in the middle of that prayer, He directly addresses this issue of withdrawing from the world. He's praying for you and me. He says in John 17, verse 15, Father, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. Now, how more clear do we need to be? He specifically says, Don't take them out of the world, but keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. You see? So there's your two guardrails. 
You're not to be conformed, but you're not to isolate yourself either. You're in the world, not of the world. It shouldn't be, you know, it shouldn't be that complicated. But what happens is we have those that are drawn to the things of the world. They lose their distinctiveness and they blend into the world. And people that know them don't even know that they're professing believers. And then on this side, you've got people that are so afraid. They're so afraid of the world that they draw themselves in and they isolate themselves away from everything And they're of absolutely no kingdom good. And Jesus says in in Matthew chapter 5 that there's a necessity of presence. You see that to be salt and light, you got to be there. You got to be there in the midst of them. You got to be there where they are. So we've got a necessity for presence. We've got a necessity for distinctiveness or distinctiveness and presence. And then number three, a necessity of illumination. Look at verse 16, because I don't want us to leave this passage without understanding that we're not just talking about any sort of behavior. We're not just talking about doing any sort of thing. He says, let your light so shine before men. What is your light? I mean, what does that mean? And, And if you're sitting there saying to yourself, well, I'm not really sure. Well, that's bad. I mean, that's bad because your king and Lord is saying to you, let your light shine. Now, what is your light? What does that mean? Does that just mean, you know, smile a lot? Does that just mean you try to be a good person? Does that just mean pay your taxes, obey the law? I mean, what does that mean? Let your light so shine before men that they see your good works and they glorify your Father in heaven. That whatever this is, whatever this light is, when it shines, people see it, they understand that their good works, they understand, they're connecting this light, whatever it is, they're connecting it to your Father in heaven. They are. So there's something about this light that makes people say, hmm, hmm, well, that's interesting. Wonder what's with that family. Wonder where they go to church. I wonder what they believe. I'd kind of like to get to know them. You know, for nine weeks I've been talking about the fruit of the Spirit. And for nine weeks all I could think about is, is that the more the fruit of the Spirit is evidenced in my life and your life, the more people will absolutely be captivated. By, they will want to know us. They will be interested in us. They, they will be curious about us. They will, it will draw people to them. You know why? Do you know how I know that? Because sometimes 
you don't think that that's true, but you're wrong if you think that it is true because they were drawn to Jesus. I mean, the scummiest, most heinous, rotten rejects in the world were drawn to him like, I mean, magnets. They couldn't, they couldn't have it. They couldn't get enough of him. Why? Because of his character and his nature. And guess what happens when it comes, when his character and nature begins to bleed out of you, people are going to be drawn to you. They're not going to be, they're not going to be repulsed by you. They're going to be drawn to you. There's going to be something curious and fascinating and wonderful and special. That doesn't mean you're not going to be persecuted. You're not going to face trials and tribulations because of your faith. Of course you are. The Bible tells us that over and over and over. But mostly, do you know where that's going to come from? If you're walking in the Spirit, where's all, where's most of the problem going to, going to come from? It's going to come from the pride, the prideful people, the, the people who think they're righteous. The people who have a whole bunch of... They're going to, a religion is going to hate that. The same people that hated Jesus are going to hate you. And the people who loved Jesus are going to be drawn to you. Think about this. You, you walk into a homeless community with a sack full of food. Sit down next to some men and women that live in tents in the, on some vacant lot. And you sit down with them and you share a meal with them and you talk to them and you listen to them and you don't do anything spectacular. You just look them in the eye and tell them that you, that you, you care for them and that you are, are curious about how can you be a blessing to them. And let me tell you what they're not going to They're not going to be offended at that. They're not going to say, oh, you think you're holier than thou? No. But there are going to be some. There will be some that will be repulsed by that. There will be some that will say, well, I wouldn't do that because I don't think that's safe. And because you're doing that, they're going to say, well, you know what? You shouldn't be doing that because I don't think that that's the right thing that you ought to be doing. And no, 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 it goes. Sure. Listen, this light, when it shines before men, they see your good works and they glorify your Father in heaven. So what is the light? Well, Jesus tells us in John chapter 3, verse 21. He says, but he who does the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen, that they have been done in God. You see that? You see, when your light shines, whoever sees your light shining knows that that has come through God, that that is the character and nature of God coming through you. That it's not just you... uh, behaving in a certain way because you want people to think good of you. It's not just you doing something because maybe you have a guilty conscience. It's not just you being a part of something because uh, you, you know, are afraid that if you don't, that God's going to do something bad to you. Or I don't know what kind of crazy reasons people have for doing things. But I know this, that there's a lot of things done 
that are good and in the name of goodness, but they're not light shining. You see, when light shines, there are things that have been done in God. There are things that that God has done in us that we now do in what He's done in us that we don't do in our own strength and our own power. You know, it's been said that there's not enough darkness in the world, in the world, to put out the light of one little candle. You ever thought about that? That if you put, if you gathered all the darkness in the world together, if you harnessed it inside some kind of big dome of some sort, all the darkness on earth, you, you, piled into one place at one time, it couldn't overpower one little candle. That one little candle would just flicker away, wouldn't it? Yeah. It can't be stopped. There's something about light. There's something about light shining through a believer as they're yielding to the Spirit of God within them as the character and nature of the... And here's the thing. Understand something. It's not you. It's not you. When you... When your light shines before men, do you know what they see? They see the light of the one who created them. You see, they... They're intrigued by it. They, they begin to resonate with what they hear and what they see because there's something different. There's something, but it's not you. It doesn't matter what you look like. It doesn't matter how eloquent your speech is. It doesn't matter because if it's the character and nature of Creator God speaking into the ears and, speak, and looking into the eyes of one that was created in the image of the same God who's speaking that into them, that light impacts them in a way that nothing else on earth impacts them. Yeah. Because you become this this living, breathing, walking manifestation of the Word of God. Because the Word is now... His Spirit is in you. And it's coming out of you. And people see that. And they see your deeds as if they've been done by God. One more thing. Look back at verse 14. There's an important Detail in verse 14 that needs to be rooted in our hearts. You see where Jesus says, you are the light of the world. Now, if you have, for example, a New International Version, it's going to say, a city on a hill. But a city on a hill is missing a very important word that's in the original manuscript. It's a city set on a hill. That what the Bible says is that this city is not a city that just 
sprung up on a hill. It's not a city that just, uh, you know, built itself up on a hill. It's not a city that ended up on that hill because somebody thought, well, there's a nice hill that would be a great place for a city. That's not how it happened. That word set, that word in the Greek is a word that is very unique and very spectacular. And it's, it, it is used to describe a, a divine or sovereign decision. It's saying that this city has been set divinely on that hill. That this particular city is on this particular hill because some external divine sovereign God put that city there on that hill. And so you and I need to understand that God has set you on the hill that you are on right now. Now listen very closely to what I'm about to say. Because I'm going to give you some practical illustrations of letting your light shine on the city, on the hill that God has set you on. Sovereignly, divinely set you on. For example, when people encounter your family and they are struck by the how how well behaved your children are, at how kind and courteous and polite they are. Not in some legalistic, militaristic way. We've all met those families. You know, the, you know, I've met a thousand of them. Not them. Just the sweet, kind, considerate children. It gets people's attention in our culture. People think, wow. Your kids, they 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 have such a a joy and a and a just a, a a sweetness about them. Yeah, yeah. People want to know what's that all about. See, when when a husband devotes himself to loving his wife like Christ loved the church. It's not going to go unnoticed. It's not going to go unnoticed. People in proximity to your hill are going to notice that. They're going to notice. What a spectacular marriage you have. Your relationship is so... It's just different. I'm not sure how to describe it. Your light is shining. You see, when you, when you approach the things as you are in the world and not of the world, but as you're in the world, as you approach the things in the world that everyone else is approaching them, but from a different perspective, You know, this morning, 
I was just leveling a little warning to this very troubling tendency that is is just getting more and more out of control by the by the moment of families that are just obsessed with sports and their kids. It is just mind-boggling to me. How much things have changed in just a few short years. It's just unbelievable. To the point where I can remember just a few years ago where it would be commonplace for me to be out and about every once in a while going and, and watching some of your kids play ball. And now the behavior is so horrible that I dread it. I I literally just dread it because I have no idea what I'm walking into because I've seen things that have just absolutely devastated me. What happens? What happens when a family approaches sports with their children but with a God-centered perspective? You see, do I think that you should just isolate yourself and keep your kids in the backyard where there's no bad influences? Of course I don't. I want your kids playing sports with all the lost kids out there. That's where they need to be. But they need to be doing that in a way that honors God. In other words, what happens when you, when, when you go to the coach and you explain to the coach that little Johnny, who happens to be the starting shortstop, no matter how much is hanging on the line for your for your big moment in time where we're going to get this little bitty trophy like this is going to end up in a garbage can somewhere a few years down the road. No matter what it is, little Johnny's not going to be there Sunday. Because little Johnny's going to be in church with his mom and dad. That's where he's going to be. And let me tell you something. That coach is going to think, here's what he's going to say. He's going to say, but, but we need him. But he, but he committed to be a part of this team. I've heard it all. But, but you don't sign up for something and then don't honor your commitment. Listen, you don't sign up for this and not honor your commitment. You are in the world and not of the world. And when you do that, your light shines. And people say, wow. 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 There's something different about you. The way that we honor and care for our aging parents, it ought to get the world's attention. The way that we look out for and love the ones who are are downtrodden and broken and hurting. It ought to get the world's attention. You see, because here's why I know this to be true. 
You're not just on any random hill. God set you on the hill that you're on. Make no mistake about it. Your neighbors are not random. It didn't just happen that you got a job working where you work, around the people that you work. Let me tell you something. You are a city that was set on that hill in that office with that company doing that job with those people. It's all by divine design. All you got to do is shine. All you got to do is shine. Don't ever say, Pastor, you just don't understand. Maybe I don't. All I know is what the Bible says. The city was set on that hill. So wherever you are tonight, in whatever circumstance, I'm not saying by any stretch of the imagination that nothing's going to change and that that's the way it's always going to be. Of course, I'm not saying that. I'm just simply saying that right now, in the moment of now, you are where you are because God sovereignly, strategically, divinely determined that that's where he wanted you to shine. And if he decides to change his mind or if he decides to answer your prayer or if he decides to do anything he wants to do, trust me, you'll be the first one to know about it because it'll already be done. Because he's the Lord. He's the Lord. And he does whatever, whatever pleases him. So listen, here we are. Commanded to be distinctive, present, specifically divinely set on a hill. Now shine. Shine. And that's what That's what salt and light look like in our lives. You and me. Waking up every day. Walking into a world that is decaying moment by moment and becoming more and more dark. But we represent salt and light. Let's stand, bow our heads. Father, we thank you. We thank you, Lord God, that you would that you would even utter these words to us, Lord. How could it ever be that we would be Salt and light. Lord, we, we don't deserve to be salt and light. We, we could never live up to the calling of being salt and light. Lord, how can, how can you in, in your perfect wisdom call us fallen people salt and light? And Lord, yet that is exactly what you have done. You have orchestrated such a miraculous, mind-blowing plan that me and my brothers and sisters gathered right in this room tonight have been redeemed by Your blood, 
filled with your spirit and commissioned to go forth from the hill that you set us on and to be ambassadors of salt and light to those whom we come in contact with. Father, thank you. Thank you, Lord God. We ask that you'd protect us from being conformed into the image of this world. And Lord God, we protect. We pray that you'd protect us from pulling back and isolating ourselves from the world in which you've sent us into. And Lord God, we'd walk in the freedom of that pathway. And we would shine just as brightly as we could shine. And Lord, when we're together, we would trim each other's wicks that we might just flicker ever so brightly. And Lord God, that no matter how dark, no matter how difficult, no matter how hard it may seem, Lord God, we would always remember that all the darkness in the world cannot overpower one little flickering flame. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. So, Father God, help us. Help us to be the people you called us to be. God, bless. Bless these wonderful people, Lord God. Help us all. Help us all, Lord. To glorify you in the place that you've put in us, God. Thank you. Thank you, Lord, that we can be the light of the world. Thank you. Now we just pause and respond to that reality in our lives. Maybe there's some, maybe there's some moms and dads that just right now in the stillness of this moment, they, they just need to brace themselves for the challenges that lie ahead with their young children. About all the ways in which they can let their light shine as they navigate in this world. Maybe there's some marriages that just need to be reminded about how do we let our light shine? Some work situations. How do we let our light shine, Lord? How do we, how do we show those around us that, that the works that we do are from God? Oh, Father, help us, Lord. Help us. Help us to accomplish the greatest mission that you've set before us, the the central mission of Christianity. God, don't let us fail. Don't let us fail here. So thank you, Lord. Thank you for Jesus who enables us, empowers us. Thank you for your spirit that leads, guides, and directs us, Lord. Thank you. You've done everything to give us all that we need for life and godliness. Now, Lord, we just respond to you. Doing us as you see fit, we pray in Jesus' name.